Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major and in this episode we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is part four of the reading and we're on chapter five. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support the podcast but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 5. Shaking Down We must try to show something of the routine and happenings on board the Nova Espero for the next two weeks, during which time we experienced fairly average weather for the North Atlantic. Off Ushant, of course, we had been too disturbed to adhere strictly to our watch system. Now, however, we began to fall into the routine of hours, meals and chores. Starting at midnight, ship's time... The watches stood as follows, midnight to 2am, 2am to 4am, 4 till 6, 6 till 10, 10 till 2, 2 till 6, 6 till 10, 10 till midnight. It will be seen that this arrangement made no provision for the changing of watch times. In our view, this is not matter with a watch and watch about between two men. Each one gets used to his allotted hours of the day and night and although always wishing that they were not so long, does not find cause for complaint on this count. An entry in the log will give an idea of our normal doings through the day and night. It's amazing how little time we get to laze about, though heaven knows I feel lazy enough. Today, for instance, my watch beginning at midnight ended at 2am. On again at 4am till 6am. Normally I cook breakfast, but Charles did it this morning. This consisted of porridge with sweetened milk and seawater and permitted water. Then tea or Nescafe, two Rivita biscuits with butter and tin spread with Marmite. Then a cigarette and into my bunk for a blissful three and a half hours until 10am. My watch again until 2pm. If the wind is forward of a beam and sea's not too big, the Nova sails herself and I'm free to tidy up the cockpit and sponge it out, clean the riding light and cabin lamp and fill them. No easy matter when there's a seaway as today. And to pick out the breakfast things, a saucepan, two bowls, two cups and two spoons. We do not use forks or knives for eating and wash up over the side. This is not a very pleasant job sometimes as occasionally an arm is plunged into the water up to the shoulder as a sudden upspringing wave comes along. If the wind is not too steady as today the compass must be watched or we find ourselves away off course. There are endless little maintenance jobs, as for example, another shackle for the gaff span or checking the shroud lanyards. We did not like to rely on bottle screws because if they happen to be faulty, the mast is over the side before you know it. Splicing and whipping rope ends here and there, off watch again at 2pm. Charles has cooked lunch. Today it is spaghetti in tomato, right Vita, we are carrying this in place of bread, and tea. Now I'm free to make up part of today's entry in the log. Afterwards, when I'm exhausted in the literary sense, and it is so very easy to shirk long entries because writing calls for considerable effort, both mental and physical, on account of the incessant motion, I can turn my attention to the almost daily chore of permuting water. This can be a very long and arduous business in bad weather, but water is an absolute necessity. And even now we cannot help but marvel at this comparatively quick change of seawater into drinking. That done, I shall be free to read for a while and then sleep. 
My next watch is from 6pm until 10pm, then some sleep, but start tomorrow again at midnight. On the 29th of May, we had a grand day sailing, for the wind was on our starboard quarter from the northeast. France was now 100 miles astern, the Bay of Biscay abeam, and we were heading out into the Atlantic. The mainsail was reefed all day, but with foresail and mizzen, the Nova sprang forward something over 110 miles during the 24 hours. We began to appreciate the wonderful joys of the soldier's wind. On reflection, it seems possible we are not born seamen at all. Despite the insult we should feel if anyone suggested this to us, we long for these following breezes always, and when they favour us, we are like children let out early from school. The next two days and nights also saw us leap forward on the unsullied expanse of the North Atlantic plotting chart. The wind was fairly steady from the northeast, but too strong for the reefed mainsail when the seas had developed. There is an entry in the log on the 30th of May which throws an interesting sidelight on another threat which then existed to our peace of mind. The man on deck might be inclined to carry too much sail. Steering a small boat when a big sea is running is exhilarating and at times wildly exciting, but for the man below trying to rest on either bunk in the cabin with his ear within a few inches of the planking, it is sheer misery. The Nova is clinker-built, so each land or lap becomes its own chattering little conversation to small seas, and when there is a real sea running and the boat is being pressed, the clamour below decks becomes indescribable. Unable to sleep, the watch below wonders how long it can go on, and his mind, now freed from responsibility at the tiller, turns unhappily on the thought of what will happen if the mast is lost or gear is damaged so far offshore. On this occasion, one of us, full of excitement, decided to hang on to all sail, no matter what happened, and only when he tired did he ease up to take in a reef. In a competition developed, each helmsman trying to extract the highest speed out of the boat during his watch, it would affect the good feeling between us, which so essential to the successful outcome of our voyage. The anxiety and loss of sleep of the man below would inevitably have disastrous consequences. By the 31st of May, the seas had built up to considerable heights, probably more than 25 feet. As the night enfolded our tumultuous little world of visible seas, phosphorescence took up the challenge against the darkness. The log records the weird effect of this pale green fire tumbling all about us, the heavy breaking tops cascading down the black unseen slopes and streamed smoothly down the backs of the seas as they continued on their way. The black sky above, without a star to be seen, was thick and close, like a stifling cloud of soot miles deep. But around and beneath the boat were vivid flashes of green light, here a few individual sparks, there a great roaring, tearing smother dashing ahead of us. Under the bottom of the boat, as she surged and bounded forward, was a vaguely glowing cloud of phosphorescence. Away in the distance, the brilliance faded, but could be seen defining the outline of the great seas. Strangely, all these masses of light, looking so bright about us, cast not the faintest gleam of radiance on anything. It was a cold, retiring fire without radiation. During the night, the wind began to die down, and before dawn, only the seas remained. We decided to catch up on our sleep, and bringing down all sail except the mizzen, we turned into our bunks, 
for a few blissful hours of unaccustomed rest. When we awoke later during the morning, the sea was oily calm. It might be thought that an oily calm spells peace. Unfortunately, this is seldom the case out at sea, for only very, very rarely is the surface really undisturbed. Almost always, there is a certain amount of undulating activity, lifting and lowering the most glassy-looking sea. Consequently, although a big ship would not be affected, a small vessel lifts and drops and rolls and pitches. The lifting and lowering, and even the pitching, go almost unnoticed, but the rolling takes toll of one's nerves when there is no wind to fill the sail and to stop the crashing and slamming of the gear aloft. Below, everything must be stowed securely, or a hundred irritating clinks and rattles will assail the weary ear. Cups, pots, tins and cans join in the clamour. Perhaps one or two cans in some remote and inaccessible locker may work loose and roll to and fro with maddening persistence, or an odd pair of pliers in a rack clicking back and forth will add the final maddening note to the infuriating syncopation. On the occasions when the weather quieted down, we took the opportunity of doing the more difficult tasks, which, under more hectic conditions, were terribly fatiguing. For instance, tidying up a mass of gear which had accumulated, sorting clothing and other less used items which now resided in a great heap almost up to the deck beams in the fore end of the cabin, or getting out another of the big tins of Rivita from forward. We dragged out into the merciless light of day, shame-faced and cringing remnants of almost forgotten clothing, dark and green with mould. They were hung in the ringing to air. When we felt we had placated our consciences in the matter of tidiness and cleanliness, we relaxed. It appears from the log entry on this day that we were reading New England history in the form of short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and that we found them very moving indeed. His Quaker characters still live in that part of the world, and even further north in Nova Scotia we discovered later, although the latter are not Quakers but revivalists. A further entry on this day may answer a question which might by this time have occurred to some civilised reader, the little matter of washing. Well, we didn't. I was resting my feet luxuriously across the cabin onto the other bunk, whereupon a pleading voice came down from the cockpit. I'm sorry to trouble you, but do you mind doing something for me? Okay, name it. Well, do you mind removing those aromatic platters of yours from where my head will be? I oblige with a bitter laugh. The man's fastidious. The sky now became overcast and a cold southeasterly breeze insinuated itself. On this course, the wind was abeam, but we still retained the spinnaker, which was pulling like a Trojan. By the 2nd of June, we had come as far south as Spain, but we were 200 miles out in the Atlantic, heading in the direction of the Azores. The wind had increased to gale force during the night, and we had an experience that reminded us that to fall overboard would be horrible for both of us. Soon after Stanley went on watch at midnight, he inadvertently brought the boat stern to wind for a moment while endeavouring to set up the fore halyard from the cockpit. A cold draught blew down into the cabin and awoke Charles, who sat up in horror, thinking for a moment that this erratic behaviour meant that Stanley had gone over the side. Charles's relief can be imagined when his call was answered. This incident brought home to us how the survivor would feel 
if his hail brought no response. As the wind increased during the day, we had to lower all sail except the mizzen and lay to to our sea anchor for a few hours. The night of the 2nd and 3rd of June was a very miserable one. Rain and cold enveloped us, and we had to endure awkward, though moderate, seas from the south. By mid-morning, however, these unhappy conditions gave way to a pleasant, clear sky and a summery breeze. We washed out a few socks, towels and other odds and ends with seawater and liquid seawater soap. After this, we brought up some things to air and then stripped off and went swimming, taking the precaution of attaching lines to ourselves. During the afternoon, numbers of baby Portuguese man-of-war floated by. This pleasant interlude was depressingly short-lived, for by the late afternoon, rain and wind returned from the south. Throughout the night and following morning, we carried the foresail, reefed, main and mizzen, but this was driving the little boat too hard for comfort. At dawn, one of us was called up from his nice warm bunk to look at the first whale of the voyage. It was not a big one, only about 30 feet long. Nevertheless, we felt a little uncomfortable when it seemed to make towards us at the last dive, a hundred yards or so away on our port bow. Obviously an over-inquisitive whale, weighing about 50 tonnes, no matter how peacefully disposed, could easily spoil our plans for the future. We were to see numerous whales later, but at no time did they evince more than the very faintest interest in us, and we thought this a point in their favour. Later on the same day, we saw an enormous shark about 50 feet away from us. It was at least 16 feet long, and although a nasty, sinister-looking wretch, we chose, mistakenly as it proved, to take its appearance as a sign that we were entering warmer water, and therefore could expect better weather. Alas, for our optimism. An entry in the log for the 5th of June contains a querulous complaint against the barometer, I think our barometer has the most pessimistic countenance I've ever seen. It has been reading disaster and hell's a poppin' ever since we left Dartmouth. No doubt it's being so cheerful that keeps it going. We trailed a long wake behind us all morning as we tore westward, with only foresail and mizzen set. The wind was four seven to eight, and we feared for our beautiful little foresail, half expecting it to be blown to rags, but we obstinately refused to bring it down. The afternoon saw a temporary improvement in the weather. The wind slowly died down to about force four, leaving us tumbling always in the great aimless seas. Towards evening, the rain began again. Rain from a grey sky on land is depressing enough, but at sea it is dismal in the extreme. Conditions continued in like manner during the 6th of June. Only things were even more unhappy on board, for no progress was made against the wind, which had increased somewhat from west by south with sharp squalls. Eventually, we had to give up and put out the sea anchor again. The following day was little better, for when we brought in the sea anchor, the best course we could make was south by west all day. We saw a new kind of bird. We had been escorted for some time by storm petrels and had come to accept these strange, rather pathetic little things who chose to spend their lives without rest upon these desolate waters, the new birds, however, were about the size of a fulmar, a little smaller than the average herring gull. The wings were dark brown on the upper sides, while the rest of the body was white and pale grey. 
Their wing shape was less pronounced than the gull at the joint and they flew generally more headlong, that is, their flight seemed less controlled. Nevertheless, the beautiful characteristics, wheeling and diving, bespoke a close relationship to our common goal. An entry in the log for the 8th of June bewails the fact that the previous day's best course was south and that today's is northwest. Wind light to moderate, weather rain and cold. The glass, in its perverse irony, reads 29.79, the highest so far. We were reading Samuel Pepys' diary now, perhaps the contrast between his comfortable existence replete with mountains of food and rivers of wine and our present Spartan conditions accounts for the day's bleat in the log. It has rained incessantly since yesterday evening and has been blowing much too hard for comfort in a boat of this size. Wind, force, six to seven, all night and today. Unpleasant, heavy and awkward seas have been throwing the boat over on her beam ends and since the wind is from southwest and we are heading west-northwest, the motion is extremely wearing. There is the regular loud crunching noise as she falls into the oncoming irregular swell, sometimes tossing a heavy white top right over herself from stem to stern. All this racket and then the shuddering jerk as she drops down to the face of a steep sea plucks at our nerves like an attack of toothache. Yet, there is a strange though very real comfort in a little boat at sea. When the weather is bad, one can imagine the sort of tasks confronting the crew on larger boats. A large spread of canvas calls for so much extra labour. Reefing is an operation on a large scale by comparison and takes longer. When we were called from watch below out of a nice warm bunk to assist in reducing sail, it was usually a matter of a few minutes only before all was snug once more. It was nice to dash, shivering below again and leap into the warmth of blankets. Sometimes we felt so good about this that we would light the stove and make a hot drink to pass out to the poor wretch outside. For several hours after this happened, however, there was such an unbearable light of virtue suffusing the atmosphere of the cabin that we later preferred to forego the pleasures of this saintly behaviour. At sea in a small boat, one can imagine all the ominous creakings and groanings, betokening heaven knows what weakness in stringer, timber, floor, planking or fastening. But it is comforting to recall the desperate hopelessness we may have known in the past when a bigger boat suddenly springs a leak, water mounting up over the cabin sole, through inaccessible seams down in the darkness of a flooded bilge, deep below the water lines, water under pressure, forcing itself in so that soon it's impossible either to keep it down or find where the trouble lies. No, not for us. We prefer the safety of a small boat. On the 10th of June, the wind moderated to force three, and we were able to haul back a point or two nearer our proper course. Thick mist enveloped us and made us think, hopefully, that we were entering the warmer ocean stream and could possibly hope for better weather. Ah oh well, Nova Espero means new hope. Just before noon, an unidentified ship of some 3,000 tons altered course towards us. She sent out a signal of which we could only read Bon Voyage. We were very sorry that she could not wait longer, as we would have liked to chat with the people on board, since they apparently knew who we were. 
The wind began to raise its voice once more during the afternoon and there are more complaints against the elements in the log, although there is an admission that we had no cause for complaint as we were aware before the voyage began that Mid-Atlantic is no place for a boat of our size. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.